Hello and welcome to the PTP Podcast. Each year, Polish in the Pulpit has hundreds of classes across a wide range of subjects, such as textual studies, practical lessons related to families, leadership training, and preaching advice. Also, numerous hot-button issues are covered with topics such as the Christian's response to politics, difficult Bible passages, racial relations, and so much more. This week's episode is from a 2015 keynote entitled, Are Women Respected and Treated Equal in Churches of Christ? taught by Brother David Shannon. This is not the sort of lesson that is taught often in local churches, but the biblical truths discussed are both important and relevant to today's world. In order to help you keep your train of thought, we are not going to take a break during the middle of this week's episode, so we're going to remind you now about Polishing the Pulpit 2019. The dates are August 16-22, through 22, and it will be held at the Sevierville Convention Center in Sevierville, Tennessee. You can learn more about tuition, speakers, and lodging at polishingthepulpit.com. And for now, let's study with David. It is good to be together again, and it's good to be able to talk about some hot topics and topics that I believe God would want us to be speaking about and meditating upon and finding His wisdom on these particular topics. It is the church's responsibility to observe the same essence for women that God has placed upon women. While at the same time, it's the church's responsibility to observe the same restrictions that God has placed upon the role of women in the leadership of the church and the leadership of the home. It is responsibility of the church to not allow the latter to demean the first. And I think perhaps for some of us, that may be a greater challenge than what first meets the eye. You notice the topic that is assigned. Are women respected and treated equal in the churches of Christ? Well, because we have no earthly headquarters, we can't make a phone call to a national or an international headquarters, and ask, what's your position on the treatment of women in the church of Christ? And so because we can't do that, we can't have an official earthly answer. Now, we can have an official answer from God as to what it should be. But I just want us to begin with fair play here. I don't claim by any stretch of the imagination to be able to speak for all the congregations of the Lord's Church around the world or even around the U.S. And so as we answer this, I feel a little bit needing for you to understand that I would rather, and I think it would be a very good uh, approach, for us instead of looking in the global picture of the churches of Christ, what if we said... You look and evaluate your congregation where you are. And especially this morning, you evaluate you. Do you respect and treat women equal in the Lord's church? 
Now, lest you think this is something that we're only talking to men this morning about how they treat women, and even though that is very important and that would be very much a part of what we talk about, I'd like to remind you that women have a responsibility to treat women with equal essence just as much as men do. And I'm sometimes amazed to see that some of the people that are the meanest to women are other, me- are other women. And so um, this goes both ways. That men and women ought to see the essence and worth of women equal to men. And so we ask ourselves this morning, how do you treat women? To look at a culture today, there's a lot of disturbing stories unfolding. It's not that these stories are new These are things that probably have happened all throughout mankind's existence. It's just now there are security cameras in so many places that now we're seeing what used to happen more often in private life as the cameras are making it public. You know, Ray Rice, in his incident where the lady that was then his fiancée, now his wife, to see on camera him knock her out cold. And then when the elevator door opens, to reach back and grab her like a bag of trash by the hair of the head and drag her out of the elevator, leaving her on the floor. He has spoken recently, often, about his regret in all of this. And just about two to three weeks ago, I heard him in an interview, some of you would have heard him also, where he spoke of the fact that he was very sorrowful for the fact that he hit her, but also he is just as sorrowful, not to belittle that, but just as sorrowful for the way he treated her after she was unconscious. But I pause to ask you, what is it in our culture that would cause anyone to treat a woman like a bag of trash. In our area, Middle Tennessee now, for a couple of years, there's been a story that won't go away. It was the story of two Vanderbilt football players who on the left side is Vanderberg, who is dating a young lady, and he was roommates with Beatty on the right, and he brings his unconscious wife or unconscious girlfriend into the dorm carrying her After they've had a night out, it's 2.30 in the morning, and she's unconscious. And again, there are cameras in the hallway and cameras that pick up this episode. And he literally drops her on the floor like a bag of trash, is how it was described in court. And from there, within two minutes, the testifying revealed, Beatty begins to sexually assault her as Vanderberg, the boyfriend, cheers him on and tells him what to do. It became a discussion in court. Is this a part of the culture that is being created at Vanderbilt on campus in the way women are viewed? The defendant representation said this, I don't know how culture can be blamed for someone raping, assaulting, and urinating on a victim who's unconscious. 
I didn't think it merited very much consideration by the jury. Again, I simply ask you, how do you treat women? One of the big stories that continues to have revelation after revelation is Bill Cosby's episode of his apparent past history throughout much of his life of the way he viewed women. Many examples are not necessary. But because of the line of thought we have, I just wanted to share with you a quote from Sindra Ladd. Because Sindra Ladd was and is a woman who is married to a very highly successful Oscar-winning film executive and producer. And so she doesn't need money. And she doesn't need someone to restore her dignity to society. But she came out recently in a statement saying this. This is the first time I've chosen to speak about that night. Now the backstory is, she went on a, quote, date, woke up the next morning realizing that she had been raped. Cosby was standing there acting as if this was normal. And she was a young woman. She gathered her things and she walked home completely shaken, inside and out. She went and sat and talked with her roommate. And she told her roommate everything and never discussed it again with anyone for 36 years, but never found peace with the situation. And so finally, after 36 years, she says, this was the first time I've chosen to speak out about that night. It will also be the last time I intend to address it publicly. I have no plans to sue. I don't want or need money. I know I have no plans for press conferences or to do any interviews. This was something that she felt like she needed to do for herself. It was interesting, though, as she described years later, her husband, not knowing this situation, was with Cosby at an event, called her over and said, Honey, I'd like for you to meet Bill Cosby. She's thinking to herself, it's been a lot of years, but I have a very unusual name. He's going to remember the name Sindra. And she says, we met, and he did not remember me at all. And she said, that revealed everything to me about a man that could do that and just as quickly and easily forget I know what I have just shared with you are extreme situations. But should I remind you, they happen far, far too often. Now, if you want to think from that extreme back to lesser extremes, I want to ask you a very important question. What is the culture in your congregation Toward women. Do the women in your congregation receive the respect and dignity that any man would receive? Or if you heard a group of men talking back in the foyer, or if you could listen in on an elders' meeting behind closed doors, or if you could be in an elders' and deacons' meeting where no women 
had the ability to hear what was being said, would you hear things like this? (laughs) That's why God won't let them lead. Yeah, it's just women talking. Oh, you're bringing this to the table? Was that what a woman said or was it what a man said? And my response to that latter would be, why does it matter? I would offer you today that there is probably a lot more sexism that goes on in our congregations than what we care to admit. I offer you today that if you are a certain age, the probability of you making sexist comments and not even realizing it is very high. And so what I'm asking you to do is not evaluate the Church of Christ globally. I'm asking you, will you give an honest evaluation to yourself and if need be, even an honest education to yourself? Let me give you a real live example that happened within the last few weeks. A group was meeting about missions. There were about eight men and one woman. And during that meeting, there became a very detailed discussion about a missionary and his wife. And in that discussion, there were several things said that were sexist about the wife. Then a little bit later on, there came a discussion of, on a list of several individuals that were asking for support. You know, we're talking $250, $500, $1,000, those kind of requests. And so the talk was, are we going to help this one? Are we going to help this one? What are we going to do here? One of the requests was for a woman. And quickly, several of the comments were very sexist. Later, because that woman that was in the room is my oldest daughter, who's married, a young adult. One or two of the guys said to me, said, hey, um, you might want to check up on your daughter. Said she was in a pretty tough meeting the other night. And nothing was said that shouldn't have been said. It It was all all right, but I just imagined it was kind of a tough meeting for her. I thought, well, that's interesting. Why was it a tough meeting only for the only woman that was in the room if nothing was said wrong? And then I talked with her about it. And with tears in her eyes, she said, Daddy, I can't believe how many people are sexist. And she said, now, what was interesting was that all the guys in that room, 40 and under, on their own, sent me a text later that night or the next morning that said, hey, I'm sorry you had to see that. There was a lot of things said that was wrong. And yet most of the men, I think all of the men in that room, 40 and above, thought that everything that was said was proper. I'm not trying to throw my generation under the bus. I'm just saying to you that there are a lot of things said on a regular basis that reveals the fact that we have bought into a culture that says because God has given the role of leadership in the home and in the church to men, they have one step up on women. And that's not true at all.
That is a shameful thought. And I would urge you to not just keep in mind as you speak, I would urge you to take this topic and study it deeply. Because here's what I'm begging you not to do. Do not hear what I'm saying today and say, I have got to figure out how to walk out of here and be polite. You realize how many people are racist? Even in the church. But you know what they've learned to do? They've learned to just be polite when they're speaking in public. But you get them with their best friend that's of the same race, and they're still racist. We're smart enough to know that God's not pleased with that, right? Are you smart enough to know that God's not pleased with, oh, can you figure out how to not say sexist remarks? No, what God wants you to do is He wants you to see every woman with the equal essence and worth as you would see any man or any child or yourself. That's what God wants us to do. And when we see each other and appraise each other's value the way God appraises it, we won't have to guard our comments nearly as much because it will be natural for our comments to reflect the appraisal that we have within. Let's go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 27, language is just like this also in 26, but in 27 he says, So God created man. And in your Hebrew, that's the word for mankind. And and I'm not trying to uh, belittle your knowledge. I'm just saying if this or passages like this is what has confused you, please learn today. It does not say God created male in his own image. And now let's imply he did not create female in his own image. Females are created as much in the image of God as men are. The fingerprint of God in our life has nothing to do with our male anatomy or with our gender. Nothing. Nothing. And so that's why when we are introduced to the human race, God created the human race in his own image. In the image of God, he created the human race. Now, once he defines that the human race has the image of God within them, then he says, yes, I made them with genders. Male and female, he created them. This is a statement on the surface. Perhaps we've heard it so many times, it's easy for us to say, sure, I agree with that. But I'm saying down to the depths of your being, do you agree that the blood of Christ is what gives us our worth and our essence spiritually. Physically, what gives us our essence and our worth is that physically we're made after the image of God. Spiritually, what gives us our image and worth is that the blood of Christ redeems us. And so Paul writes about that life. Notice the last phrase in 28, in Christ. All of those that are in Christ, we have this blessing. For as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what he's saying? It doesn't matter what continent you're from. It 
It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. God says, bring up your average Gentile, bring up your average Jew. Let me tell you which one I see has the greatest essence and worth. It's equal. We're one in Christ Jesus. He says, bring up your classes of people. Bring up your free man. Bring up your slave. And culture's not going to agree with you on this. But he says, let me tell you who has the greater essence or worth. Neither can one up the other. In Christ Jesus, they're one. In this room, there'd be someone with the richest portfolio. Bring that man here. Bring that woman here. And then go out in the East Tennessee hills and find the one living in the deepest poverty and bring them here. And ask God, which class has the greatest essence and worth? And it ought to ring to the core of our being that God would say they are equal. It doesn't matter what continent you're from. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter how culture classes you. And then he takes that next needed statement. It does not matter if you're male or female. You are all one. Equal essence and worth. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Not seeing this is not because the Bible confuses us. Not seeing this is perhaps because we're reading the Bible with a slanted view that we want to place on the Bible where we place all the emphasis on restrictions and then misunderstand what they really mean. But if we were to go back to the Scriptures and then we were to take that and even go back to history... You know what we find time and time again? That anywhere Christianity has been taken throughout history, the estimation and the worth and the appraisal of women in that society has increased because of the equalescence that God places on women. Philip's daughters, they were given the gift of prophecy in Acts 21 and 9. Let that sink in. First century, miraculous gifts are being passed out by the ministration of the Holy Spirit. And imagine how this works. God looks around and says, who do I want to speak forth the word of God? The holy word hasn't been written yet in its completion. Who do I want to speak out? I tell you what, I'm only going to let men do that. I'm not going to let any woman have the word of God given to them in prophetic form. No. That's the way a lot of us men act, but that's not at all the way it was. When God was given the right and the opportunity and the ability and the, special, the spiritual gifts for individuals to be able to speak forth the word of God, he allowed women to have that gift just as he did to allow men. Now, did women have to do that and still honor the restrictions that's placed upon them? Yes, but it did not mean they did not have the worth to have some of the most meaningful gifts that God passed out. And so I pause and ask you, should we dumb down our women? Or should they have the right to have as deep of biblical knowledge and training as any man? Chew on that one for weeks. And then ask yourself, what's the culture in your congregation? If a woman decides she wants to go and receive degrees in Bible, 
so that she can enter in into a ladies' class on Sunday morning in your congregation and she can teach a class just as deeply rooted in academic knowledge of Scripture as the preacher that's down the hall teaches in his class. Are you thinking to yourself that's the way it ought to be? Or are you thinking, I don't don't know, I don't know, I don't know, what's the problem? What's the problem? Should you confront the Holy Spirit? Hey, you you goofed it up. You you shouldn't have given the women the gift of prophecy. You're, You're kind of treating them like they ought to have knowledge like men have. Oh, let's go back to a lot of the Jews where they said, you ought to burn the Torah before you allow a woman to be taught it. Before you allow a woman to read from it. Just burn it. I long to see the day in the churches of Christ that we have a culture where the women are urged to learn and study the Word of God as deeply as any man. I assure you, I assure you that's God's plan. And we see examples of it back in Scripture. In Acts the 18th chapter and 26 where we see Priscilla and Aquila. This fine couple is mentioned several times in the Bible and every time they're mentioned with tremendous insight, uh, value of appraisal in the sense that they're mentioned in a very complimentary form or format of what they're doing for Paul, what they're doing for the church, what they're doing for Apollos, pulling him aside and teaching him the way more perfectly. They just seem to always be a, a powerful couple in the kingdom. And you probably note this, but isn't it interesting, but about half the time that they're mentioned, she's mentioned first. Usually in Scripture, there's a significance in the order of names as they're mentioned. Just like there's a significance why when the apostles are mentioned, Peter is always the lead name. He was the natural leader. Isn't it interesting that half the time she is mentioned? I'm not suggesting she was the leader of the home or the leader of the church. I'm suggesting to you that she's mentioned there because her influence in the church was just as great as her husband's. And we all know in our congregations that there are many couples that even though the woman is submissive to her husband and she's submissive to her elders, her influence in the church is greater than her husband's. There's not a problem with that. It's just the reality that women are such a powerful gift in the Lord's kingdom. That's all it is. And here is a woman that her place in the Lord's kingdom had accomplished so much that half the time she is mentioned before her husband. And then we see the direct teachings like in Titus, the second chapter in three, four and five, that the older women are commanded to teach the younger women. Or we look at passages like that short passage of recommendation that's given to Phoebe to the brethren at Rome in Romans, the 16th chapter in verse one and two, where He describes her as a servant and one that has helped him and many others. But then he tells them whatever business that she is about, that they as the church should assist her in that. I don't know what her ministry was, but whatever her ministry was, she had powerfully affected Paul and others. And now she's going over for a short time or a long period of time. I don't know, but she's going over to Rome. And Paul says, 
I want you to jump in and I want you to help her with her ministry. Could a woman do that in your congregation? Could a woman have a strong and effective ministry in your congregation that helps preachers, that helps others, that you could say to the congregation, we're so thankful for this woman, we're thankful for the ministry she has, we want everybody to be supportive of her and everything? Or would that just violate the culture of your congregation? We don't know much about Mary that's mentioned just four verses down, but we know that she labored much and Paul speaks of her highly. We sing about the Macedonia call and we know that it was a rich time in the life of Paul whenever he was getting discouraged probably because he had plans on his mission trip and the Holy Spirit kept shutting the door and shutting the door. And I can imagine Paul saying, well, where do you want me to go? And the Macedonia call comes and the next morning they pack up first thing and they go to answer the Macedonia call. And the answer to the Macedonia call is a group of women and Lydia and her family are the first converts of that great Macedonia call and that book that we love so much of Philippians where he begins that book by talking about his place with them in their place in the first day of the gospel. What was the first day of the gospel in Philippi? It was with the women teaching them the gospel. Who were the first ones that Jesus showed himself to in resurrected form? Who was the one that Jesus spoke about specifically from the cross to be sure and take care of? If our estimation of women is low, it's not because we learned it from Scripture and it's not because we saw it in the life of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when we say, well, how does a missionary stay out on the field? How many of us have tried to help young missionaries? Have we explained it this way? You may get all fired up about your mission work, but if you can't get fired up about raising support, you won't stay on the mission field very long. Jesus stayed out in public ministry for three years. And according to Luke, the eighth chapter in verses one through three, it was women that helped finance his mission work. Or think about the wonderful example of Dorcas. Whenever she passes away, how the widows are standing there and they're showing the fruit of her hands, the fruit of her life as a woman that has made a powerful impact upon the Lord's church. You see, when we see what God's plan is, we see that God's plan is that the church needs women desperately. Right now, we could take a poll of everyone here and you could go to a head count of how many strong spiritual women do you have in your congregation and how many strong spiritual men do you have in your congregation and which one are you going to have the most of? I don't think I've ever been in a congregation that had more strong spiritual men than they had spiritual women. The Lord's church would not be what she is today by any stretch of the imagination without the place that God designed for women to fulfill. You see, we see Jesus' example like the woman that was caught in adultery Well, if she really was caught in the act of adultery, there was someone missing there that day. And see, Jesus didn't play that game. They said, okay, I know really what you're trying to do is you're trying to trap me. And because you're treating this woman like a bag of trash, you don't care how much you embarrass her. All you want to do is get at me and you will use her as a pawn. I'm not playing that game. And in his ultimate wisdom, he just called them out. Whoever is without the first sin, cast the first stone. 
They're convicted of their sins and they leave. He doesn't let the woman off the hook. He indirectly calls her a sinner. Go and sin no more. This is a good time for you, lady, to repent. This is a good time for you to stop sinning. Do you think she listened? And if so, why? I suggest to you that she listened. And I suggest to you that the reason she listened, because in that occasion that day, he was the only one that treated her with equal essence and worth as a human being. That's what we can learn from our Lord. And surely that's what He expects of us to do as we treat women or children or other men. We also see the woman at the well. You know how she was what? A Samaritan? A woman living immorally. The man you're with now is not your husband. He's a Jew. He's a man. And he's perfect. You talk about the clashing of cultures and of realities. And what did he do? He saw her essence and her worth. And all that he said reflected that. And because of that, in her estimation, he moved from just being some Jewish man to being a sir, to being a prophet, to being the Christ, the Messiah. And do you remember who was the voice that went out and called that whole town to come hear Jesus? That woman did powerful acts of evangelism as a result of that. So I ask you again, how do you treat women? What is the culture in this? What's the culture in your congregation toward women? There are two passages of restriction. They're important. It's important for us to understand and obey God in all things. And so it's just as important for us to understand this as it is important for us to also understand the essence and the worth of women. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, it makes it very clear that there are restrictions on the roles that He places upon men and women. The role of some men, not all are required to do this, but the role of some men, if we were to study through 1 Timothy 2 and the third chapter, is that the men are to lead prayer. The men are to teach. The men in the church are to serve as elders and to serve as deacons. But in this same passage, we go back and we read that he gives restrictions to all women. And the restrictions are this. They are restricted from leading the prayer when the church assembles. They are restricted in this passage from overdressing. The word modesty there means to dress appropriately. And so underdressing would be inappropriate, but the application giving here is that the woman should not overdress. Braided hair and the jewels and, and the fancy dresses and, and all of that. And when you think about in Christ, we are all one. In your county that you live in, could the poorest woman come and worship in your congregation and feel in place or would she feel out of place? I suppose that's a part of what the Lord is speaking about here. But also, whenever anyone puts all of their emphasis on their outer person, they're forgetting the true inner beauty 
And he takes the dress in this occasion back to what professes to be godliness. And so we need to make sure that whatever our deduction is from this teaching, that it is a godly dress that anyone could acquire and achieve in our communities. But also we see the restriction of serving as an elder and restriction of serving as a deacon because they are to be men that are married and have children. Women are not restricted from teaching everywhere. In the home, we see the example of the grandmother Lois and the mother Eunice of Timothy. And we know from the third chapter in verse 15 of 2 Timothy that he learned the scriptures from his childhood. And that's what he was continually to pull from in his day-to-day life as an adult. What his, the women in his life had taught him. Right now, for most in this room and all that grew up in the church, we could go around the room and we could say, what women powerfully impacted you in teaching you scripture? And everybody here could list women in your life that taught you scripture. On any given Sunday or Wednesday, go around and do a head count of your teachers and see... Do you have more male teachers or do you have more female teachers? I would suppose, at least in the classroom setting, that it would be close, either equal or to the favor of women, that every week more individuals are being taught by women than by men in our classrooms. And so the idea that says I have these restrictions and it hinders me from teaching, so therefore I don't need to have deep Bible knowledge, it's just not founded on, on truthful facts. I was talking a little bit about this with one of my friends who is the preacher at, at Graymere uh, Church of Christ in Columbia, Andrew Phillips. And, and just in a very informal email, back and forth, we, we, we went back and forth two or three times And this is just a sentence in his email. And I thought, you know, that is so brilliant. He says, role distinctions are not value judgments. Hebrews 7 said Jesus couldn't be a high priest in the Levitical system because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. It had nothing to do with Jesus' value, but God had a specific role for the Levites to play. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus came to this earth And he, living under the old covenant, remember, the new covenant didn't come in fact, he died on the cross. He lived under the old covenant and he wasn't allowed to be a priest. Okay, so now does that take away from his essence of worth? Oh, you can't be a leader among the Jews. You can't serve as a priest. So you're not as valuable. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And I get this. The head of Christ is God. So if you have attached, we're getting back to this knowledge. If you have attached in your mind, even though you might not say it out loud, you have attached in your mind the idea that because God does not allow women to be the leaders in the church and in the home, that some way they are at least a little bit lesser than man. Just remember what you're saying is that because Christ took upon the role of submission when he came to this earth, he is just a little bit lesser than God the Father. 
Now you have a real problem in your theology. If Christ could hold equal essence and worth with the Father while coming to this earth and submitting to Him, we see that there is no equation of essence and worth to submission or headship roles. In Philippians 2 and 5, it's this kind of language. Let the mind of Christ be in you, which is always in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and coming in likeness of man. Is he double talking or can he do that? Can he say, I have this equal place with God, but at the same time I'm going to come and be submissive? If our theology is proper and our understanding of the headship and submission is proper, those two, they fit together like a hand in glove. But for some, they just don't see it that way. They see it that submission means that you're lesser and that you have a lesser worth. So do you ever speak like you're confused? Do you ever confuse the worth, the worth or the essence of roles? Do you ever talk as if men are more important? Women or children are lesser. Remember what Jesus said about children in Matthew 18? Remember what he said, if you offend a child, it be better for you that a millstone hung around your neck and you're thrown in the bottom of the river? How serious is God about those of us that culture might say are the stronger ones or the leaders? How serious is God about saying, I want you to value all human beings? Our culture today is comfortable with abortion in part because those infants in the womb have no voice. They're weaker. And so therefore, because they're weaker, is their essence less? Yeah, to culture it is. But not to us that understand that we are all equal because we bear in life as a human being the image of God. Knowledge can help. So do you know who you are talking to? We're going to close with just a few facts that may seem kind of random. But here's, here's my, my hope and my plea in this close. I hope that today we're reminded and stirred in the fact that we want to honor the worth and the essence of women. Uh, we don't want to pull out a lot. Isn't it unthinkable that the men come and, and want to rape the angels? How does your mind get to the point that you would meet the men at the door and say, I don't want you to rape the angels, but I have some daughters that are virgins I'll offer up to you. I don't know how culture can get so skewed that a father can have such an understanding. But I know this. Sometimes we fall prey to whatever culture around us is. That's just what we do. And if we grow up in a racist culture, we're racist. If we grow up in a sexist culture, we're sexist. And I'm just asking you today to hold yourself accountable. And to make sure that whatever the culture of your congregation is, that you as an individual will esteem the essence of individuals the way God would want you to. There are 96 million people in the United States today that have no spouse. That means almost half, 43% of all Americans over the age of 18 are single. 
do you give just as much essence and worth to someone who's single as someone who's married? Before you quickly say, of course I do, go ask the single people in your congregation if that's the culture of your congregation, and I can almost assure you the answer is going to be no. I beg you to go back and ask some of the young 20s that are single if they receive the same respect and worth in the congregation as the married 20s and 30s. They don't feel like you do. Ask the widows. 17% of women 25 and older have never been married. In other words, one out of six women today in America have never been married. Of young people today, it's projected that 25% of them will never marry. So the question that we've got to ask ourselves in the church of Christ, can we create a culture that says, listen, your worth and your essence isn't tied to whether or not you have a spouse. And that may be easy to say, but we don't do a very good job living it out. And so, so then we look at this and say, okay, who else does this affect? It's not only the never married, but when you think about in the world today, there are 13.7 million people who are widowed. In other words, take the population of, the, of, of Tennessee, everybody, the, the children, everybody, take the entire population of Tennessee. In America today, you would have two states of Tennessee of people that are widowed. And then imagine this, of that 13.7 million, 11 million of them are women. Ask them if the church shows them the honor and the respect that they received all the years that their husband was alive. And if they're truthful with you, you're probably not going to like the answer, but don't throw it away because you don't like it. Instead, say, now what can we do as a congregation to show these women essence and worth even though their husband is no longer alive? Or look over to the single women and maybe your first thought is, well, they just need to get married. If you get to go to heaven, why don't you sit down and take that up with Paul? Just sit down and have just a friendly conversation to ask Paul about, you know, how, why didn't more people marry? Because you know that really to be spiritual, you, you have to get married. I mean, you know, if you're going to be, I'm talking class A Christian. I know, I know somebody can be a class B Christian and not ever get married. But, but, you know, just have that conversation with Paul and see how it turns out. Do you have equal essence and worth for the women in your congregation that are never married? Do you have equal essence and worth in your estimation of women that have been married, but their husband has passed away? What about the single women in your congregation that come with children in their life? Half of them, according to America, uh, here in America, have never been married. The other half have either divorced, separated, or widowed. But here's what, and just we're about to run out of time, but I want to show you this burden. I want you to imagine a pew on Sunday morning. And once you imagine a, a woman comes in with her two children, she's single. Her husband's left her a few years ago. She's single. She comes in with her two children. She shares the pew with one of her friends that's married and with her husband and with two children. What are each of those two families dealing with that's very different? This woman over here is dealing with trying to fulfill within her single self the role of a mother and a father at one time. She's trying to fulfill the role of trying to deal with 24 hours a day where she needs to be at two places at one time like a husband and wife can be to a mother, as a mother and father, but she can't do that. But you know what else she's dealing with? She's also dealing with the reality that 
This couple over here that says, whoo, we have a hard time making ends meet. Say to that couple right there, hey, you know for every $3 you made this week, let's take two of them away and now you try to make your ends meet. That's what the single mom is dealing with every week. So when you think, what can we do to help? We need to see women... We need to love their family. We need to offer them a supportive congregational family. We need to care for their soul. But especially in relation to today's study, I want you to look at these next three. We must help them find purpose. We must respect them. And we must value them. I close with this quick, real illustration. A few weeks ago, I sat on a panel where audience questions were submitted. And a woman's question, Christian woman in the Lord's church, her question was this. Since in the Lord's church, there are so many things that women cannot do, how do I find my real purpose for living? And I wanted to cry. Do you realize if we took on a piece of paper and we wrote the restrictions that God gave to women on a piece of paper, it'd be about this long. Do you realize if we wrote all of the things that a woman can do in the Lord's church, it would go out the back door for hundreds of yards. How did we get to the place in the Lord's church that we have created a culture that says, women, good luck with finding purpose in life here because there's not much you can do and you're not really needed. And I don't know all the ways we've created that, but I beg you today, we've got to destroy that because it didn't come from heaven. And may God bless us in accomplishing that. Thank you for listening. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. For more PTP information, visit polishingthepulpit.com or search for Polishing the Pulpit on Facebook.